0: Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach.
1: Today I'm talking with Tanya Schmel, a retired police sergeant, and currently she's serving as the director of peer support programs for crisis systems management. Tanya is a native of Des Moines, Iowa, but retired to Montana. She retired from the West Des Moines Police Department as a patrol sergeant. Over 20 years in law enforcement, she was assigned to the patrol division, bike patrol, special operations division, crime prevention, community relations, and the criminal investigations unit. Tanya has been involved in many aspects of the police department, including 15 years as a negotiator and team leader with the special emergency response team. She has been a liaison with the mobile crisis response team, developing and maintaining relationships with individuals with mental health issues. She has assisted in developing programs and legislation throughout the years and received numerous awards for her service within her profession. Tanya has developed and implemented numerous training programs for organizations, civic groups, schools, and first responder agencies. Tanya also volunteered as a critical incident stress management team member. In 2002, on the first anniversary of 9 11, she volunteered in New York City to provide peer support services to the members of the New York City Police Department. Today, she volunteers in providing peer support and critical incident stress management services to first responders. Since 2009, Tanya has worked extensively with returning combat veterans and law enforcement agencies throughout the world in topics related to critical incident, combat and police stress, police veteran suicide, peer support, and encountering individuals with mental health issues. Tanya has a bachelor's degree in sociology from Iowa State University and her master's degree in public administration from Drake University. She has provided extensive training in the fields of peer support, critical incident stress management, stress, resiliency, and transitioning veterans. Tanya utilizes her personal experiences of stress within the police environment to help develop resiliency strategies in her trainings. Over the last few years, she has developed a mid-level management course for the Saudi Arabian police and provided resiliency peer support training in 17 states. Germany, Japan, South Korea, and El Salvador. Tanya, thank you so much for for coming on and agreeing to let me interview you. Uh, You've got quite the uh, impressive resume. And we had a conversation the other evening where um, you you gave me even even more insight into your background. And I think we'll get into that. But let's kind of Start off with what, what led you into law enforcement?
2: Strange thing is, is that my family uh, are mostly military and I thought I would rebel and go to college. And I first actually started in a completely different field. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Uh, I wanted to be into journalism and, and, and learn languages and travel. But I took a year off in between my first two years of college and took a criminal justice class during that time because I didn't want to completely get done um, or get out of it. But I had to make some money to get back to college. So I took one class and the only thing that worked with my schedule was a criminal justice class and I loved it and I got the bug and that is where it started.
1: I think to really kick things off, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you do currently with the crisis uh, crisis systems management team
2: yeah definitely so uh i've worked for the company for a number of years since about 2009 and uh, as a negotiator i was giving trainings for negotiations um you know how to be a negotiator how to negotiate with individuals And it kind of um, evolved into, right after we started getting returning veterans into um, from the wars, we were having veterans that were having a lot of issues. So we were doing a lot of peer support programs around that time with the military and they were seeking training from individuals that had an uh, understanding of crisis crisis management, crisis um, uh, debriefings, defusings, and peer support. Well, based on my background, back in 2001, I got trained right after 9-11 in crisis crisis management. Um, And so what that allowed me to do was do debriefings and peer-to-peer kind of interactions. And, And not only that, but I had a background knowledge of the military, my dad was career military my brother was career military my husband 38 years he's actually in kuwait right now um and so i had a real basic knowledge of what the soldiers were going through so i started doing trainings back then it was called critical incident stress um, or critical incident peer support and that kind of evolved because as we know in law enforcement It takes us about 10 years to get into what everybody else is doing. And we model a lot uh, from what the military does. So that is when we started doing debriefings. um, And I was volunteering with the Red Cross where we would go out. And in this case, it was in Iowa. And we would do debriefings for first responders. So police officers, firefighters, medics that were responding to, let's say, a fatal house fire or, you know, a fatal crash, and we would do debriefings. And as many people know, with the CISM model is what we call it, the critical incident stress management model, that evolved more into, let's do some peer-on-peer. Peers understand what other first responders are doing. And so it evolved into that. And when I retired in 2016 from the police department, uh, I started working on this segment of the company, which is called LERPS, Law Enforcement and First Responder Resiliency and Peer Support. So what we do is we go across the world and we provide training on resiliency, emotional wellness. We talk about peer support. We talk about peer support for the family. There's a lot of elements to it. um, And we've been lucky enough to be able to go, like you said, 17 states. I think we're actually in 18 now. um, And a number of other countries to kind of explain to them, hey, this is what we can do to help each other out. We don't necessarily need to always go to a mental health professional, which is wonderful when we need it. But sometimes that one peer on peer stuff can minimize the impact of trauma and stress, but also kind of direct us into the avenue that we might need to go.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the, res- the resiliency training that you do?
2: Yeah, so um, we normally do, before COVID hit, we were doing quite a few 20, or excuse me, 40 hour trainings where we would come in and we would train first responders on what is stress? What does it look like for a first responder? What are the things that we're going to experience? Um, We looked at mental health issues because a lot of us are dealing with some mental health issues. Doesn't mean that we're there's that we can't do our job, but it means, hey, let's try to figure out a way that we can deal with that. So we talk about mental health issues. We talk about resiliency. How can you build your own resiliency? And there's a lot of elements to resiliency. There's the physical resiliency, obviously that physical fitness that we we keep in shape and we eat well. This is going to keep us in good mental strength also. But there's legal resiliency and psychological resiliency. So we address those types of issues. And then we talk about what, it's, what we need to start a peer support program. What does it look like? What do policies and procedures look like? And how can we utilize it within our agency? Because every agency is different. Some people have the ability to have an actual resiliency um, section within their police department. Others will have officers or firefighters or medics that are doing their job full time. um, And so they're not necessarily able to do that peer support. So we look at all of those elements and how can we make it work for our individual agency. But then we also focus a lot on first responder suicide because we do have an issue, obviously, how can we mitigate that? How can ourselves mitigate that? Um, And then we talk about peer support for our family members. And this can be anywhere from mom and dad to our children, to our spouses, our significant others. And um, then we also, once COVID hit, we started doing an online course, hard to do a 40-hour long uh, online course. So we've kind of um maneuvered it so it's 24 hours and we try to hit as much as we possibly can. And then we also have an emotional wellness course that can be anywhere between an eight hour to a four hour course online or in person. And then also we definitely do some individual courses reference suicide. You know most of us as a first responder have had a friend or a family member or somebody we work with that has Suicided, and we try to address those issues not only for ourselves but what we might see in others, so that we can be a benefit to them.
1: When I teach leadership, I I talk about the emotional intelligence aspect of, of leadership and why it's so important. And part of that emotional intelligence aspect is having self awareness and you self-awareness is a little more difficult when emotionally you're you're not well um it's hard to have that self-awareness if other aspects of emotional intelligence aren't in place and i I just i kind of want to get your perspective uh through what you do how how important is the emotional wellness, the, the resiliency, uh, the emotional intelligence aspect um, when, when, you're, when you're teaching people.
2: So Dave, I, I feel like the best way to explain that, and if I'm off you know what you want to talk about, let me know, but I feel the best way to explain that is by giving you a little bit of my personal background of what I went through. Okay. Because emotional intelligence is sometimes what we call resiliency, right? It's that ability for us to go through stressful events or or traumatic events or what I like to call significant events. Events in our life that maybe somebody doesn't necessarily consider traumatic, but it is a significant event in your life. And this can be anywhere to an officer involved shooting. Um, responding to a fatal um, house fire, anywhere to the death of your dog. Every single person has a way that we deal with things. It's our resiliency. And the point is, is that we want to try to stay on that line, that baseline of what we as an individual have as that resiliency to be able to deal with stressors, okay? Okay. So I had years, you guys, years of, um, this training, providing this training to other people. But when I went through in my life, a significant event, um, it really beat up my resiliency. Okay. I had that emotional intelligence. I had the ability to recognize in myself that I was going through this stuff. Didn't mean I didn't go through it. But it made me look at it and go, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm seeing that I've got an issue. So I had um, I had worked at my police department or at least in law enforcement at that point, 15 years. Um, and we had a new chief that had come into the department. And, you know, uh, during our trainings, I really give a lot more de- detail on this, but I'll try to to be as simple as I can. But if you have any questions, let me know. So. New chief comes into play. I was a brand new sergeant. I'd only been a sergeant a year. So I was still learning. But within my agency, it was also the very first female uh, command staff member. So it was an adjustment for everybody, obviously. I worked in an agency that did not have a lot of females in it. Um, At one point, we had seven. But by the time I was promoted, we had had only one. And that was, no, excuse me, three. Um, But right before that, it was just one. So it kind of fluctuated on how many females we had in the department, but it was still an adjustment for everybody. The chief comes in and day one, literally day one, um, I get treated differently than all the male sergeants that are in a meeting. um, His very first command staff meeting, he went around and asked every single person, tell me who you are, what you see um, for the movement of the department, the growth of the department. Went from a male sergeant that was sitting next to me in the same exact uniform I was wearing, hopped over me and went to another male uh, sergeant. I was dumbfounded. And afterwards, um, we went to a a lunch. It was me and a couple of other officers, um, excuse me, a couple of other people from the department, two administrative staff, and one was the outgoing chief. And we sat there and I had said, well, you know, that really made me angry that he did that. I don't understand why he did that. But at no point did I say, you know what, this is a female thing because you got, it hadn't even occurred to me. I'd been there 15 years. I thought there's no way that it was going to be a female issue. Later got called into his office and he basically told me that I had a problem with him because he thought I had a problem with female He went to the HR director and told them that I had a problem with it. And you guys, it went downhill from there. After a four-year battle, I ultimately went to trial. I had um, filed an EEOC case against him, the city manager and the HR director. That EEOC case came back that says, yes, they were in violation of the law, but we really can't do anything. We can't force him to give you... The back pay raises that he gave all the male sergeants. We can't force him to put you in a different position other than midnight patrol, but we can kind of mediate so you guys can get along. Well, after four years of being written up, which I had never been written up, never been in trouble, never been reprimanded in any shape or form in those 15 years, and I had been ever reprimanded almost daily at that point. So I decided that I was going to sue him. Um, there were two other women in the lawsuit. Uh, one was a um, animal control, who's a non-sworn uh, position, and then the um, uh, intel, yeah, which is a non-sworn position. They both ended ended up uh, settling before trial, but I went to trial, and a four day trial um, ended in him not, him refusing to come back to trial basically and the city asking me to settle. But two months prior to that, I had actually gone out on FMLA. Um, I had gotten to the point where I could physically not go to work without throwing up. It was an excruciating experience for me the last two years of that. I'd been diagnosed with PTSD I had gained 60 pounds. I had um, headaches so bad. I had to have Botox put in my head uh, every six weeks, two shots here, two shots here, and two shots here, which is excruciating. I had a lot of mental health issues that I had to deal with. Now look back, I had this education. I had this knowledge. And when I recognized these things in myself, I said, okay, you know what? I need to go see my counselor or I need to go see my doctor. And in my case, I did do medication. I did medication for my high blood pressure, which I got during that time um, for stress, for the anxiety and for depression. That's what worked for me. But having that emotional intelligence, that knowledge to say, you know what, something's wrong with me. Something is just not right with me trying to get through the job because I had every intentions of coming back. I was not retiring. I was not leaving. I was not. I um, had no intentions of ever leaving up until that point of September 2nd of 2016 when I got a call for the first time, and at this point it had been, you know, almost 20 years of work. Got a call on the radio that said, uh, we got a gun call. We got somebody in an apartment complex who's got a gun. Now, mind you, I'm a sergeant and I'm responsible for um, my officers on the street. And I hesitated. In 20 years, I'd never hesitated on a call. And the reason I hesitated is because I knew no matter what I did, whether I pulled my gun, where I didn't pull my gun, whether somebody got injured, whether it was a nothing call, I knew no matter what I did, I was going to be reprimanded for it and I knew that I would hesitate in that moment and that was the day I knew I had to leave because I wasn't willing to put other people's lives in danger but you know I had the intentions of going back still even though I went out on FMLA emotional intelligence you guys allows you to say to yourself I know that I'm in danger right now Or I know that I need to work on putting myself in a position where I can do this job. So hopefully that explains a little bit more about emotional intelligence and what I think it means.
1: When we spoke the other evening and and you just spoke about it, well, when we spoke the other evening, I I told you some of my background and, and some of the things that I've been trying to do with regards to women in the fire service. I I was wondering if, since you have personal experience with being treated differently because you're a woman, I I feel like a lot of times, well, I, I can speak from personal experience, 23 years in the fire service, it wasn't until the last few years in the fire service that I I started, well, I'd say it wasn't until maybe six or seven years ago that I started to recognize this disparity in how women are treated in the fire service, in male-dominated fields. I started to do quite a bit of research specifically on that because I came to this theory. I I recognized in the fire service throughout the country, you can talk to firefighters, fire officers, chief officers throughout the country, and there's a pretty strong consensus that there is a leadership vacuum in the fire service. And the fact that emotional intelligence is such an important aspect of effective leadership and there are components to emotional intelligence that women are much, they're just more adept with communication, empathy, being able to, to connect with the people that they're leading, and understanding where they're coming from. And those components are such a vital part of effective leadership, especially the communication part. Now, when the the culture of an organization is not very inclusive of women i think that what women can bring to that leadership portfolio in an organization is very much limited and i believe that it just perpetu it has perpetuated itself and this is this is my theory my hypothesis that there has to be a really big Uh, shift in culture in the fire service where the culture is more inclusive of women for the leadership component to to shift in a more positive direction and in your experience I I know from talking to you earlier that when you started in law enforcement you were the only woman right Yep. yep and How how was that experience?
2: So I started in law enforcement in the mid-90s. And when I started, I started a very small agency. There was 12 officers. I was the very first female. Um, My experience was, you know, something I expected because obviously getting into law enforcement as a female, you always understand that there's going to be challenges, not always negative challenges, but challenges nonetheless. And, um, one of the things that, that was kind of a shocker to me is that that agency was not prepared to have another sex in that, uh, as a police officer. So there was one locker room and I had to share the locker room with the other 11 male officers. So what they asked me to do was when there, when I was going to be in there, that I put a pink sheet of paper on the door. Well, I mean, come on, let's be realistic. You know, sometimes you would forget, sometimes you'd be in a hurry. A lot of times you'd be called, you know, called in for work and you had to change into your uniform or whatnot. And it was never feasible. I walked in on the guys all the time because I didn't know that there was somebody in there. So, um, I ultimately had to change how I did it. I either came in uniform or I went into the bathroom and changed my uniform. There was actually also interestingly enough back then, um, there were pornography magazines in the department and that was a normal thing. And they had to remove all of that stuff before I came in. Um, and a lot of officers make sure I understood that, you know what, their porn library was, had to get rid of it because of me. Um, you know, I never necessarily always took everything as, oh my gosh, this is against, you know, me being a female. I understood there will be changes. You have to be realistic, you know, um, when you are evolving, cha- change is challenging sometimes. And you talk about emotional intelligence again. You know, if you think of what emotional intelligence is, that's the ability for you to um, share your emotion, control your emotion, or express it. And females, not all, but a majority of the females, we tend to cry when we get mad. <laughs> it's a normal emotion for us. Well, talk about the challenges that you deal with, with a male officer that's not used to that, not prepared prepare for that. They think you're weak. Uh, For example, when I get mad and when I was going through all of my stuff, you know, one of the things that I did a lot was express my emotion. So if I got really, really mad or, you know, something affected me, I would cry. It wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I liked to do in front of people, but that was the emotion that I showed. Like you said, females show a lot of emotion and that can be scary for the male. That can be like, oh my God, what's wrong? Oh my God, she can't do her job because she's a sissy. So there's many, many, many facets to, of um, that growth for a department to bring in females and bring in females in leadership because we do do leadership differently. We, It's just the nature of who we are as human beings. Males and females look at things completely different. So when it comes to leadership, um, exp- and having a female come in in, in a leadership posi- position, I feel like that's kind of scary. I think that they don't want that change because most first responders don't like change, right? We like what we know. We like to be able to come in, do our job every day with no change. And that's a change that has to be at least uh, we have to be open for the discussion of what the change is going to be.
1: What advice would you give to Young women going into public service, law enforcement, fire department. What advice would you would you give those women going into this male dominated world? How to how to survive? How to thrive?
2: Yeah, you know I get this question a lot, especially since my case um, happened. I get a lot of phone calls of people who might be going through situations at their work. that already are working in the first responder world. Um, what I say to them, and I would say to anybody, any female going into the first responder world is, you know, it's not an easy job necessarily all of the time. And most of the issues that you're gonna have are gonna be with inside of the organization rather than outside of the organization. When I started in law enforcement, I, you know what, I wasn't stupid. I knew that there would be some sexual harassment. I knew there would be times where people would tell me that I shouldn't be in law enforcement because I was a female. I knew it wasn't gonna be easy. But what I didn't realize is that most of the issues were gonna be coming from the people that I worked with and their inability to kind of appreciate my type of work or appreciate that I'm just here just to do my job, just like you. So I say, go into the first responder world with your eyes open, you know, have that ability to have emotional intelligence. Meaning if you want to express an emotion or talk about something, do it, don't hide it. Don't try to ignore it, deal with the situation because all that's going to do is compound that. I say, go in, do the best job that you have the ability to do. You guys, I loved my job. I loved my job for 15, 16 years of it. The only reason that that changed was because of somebody with inside of the organization. So I say, go in, work hard, address the issues that might come up, and understand that, you know, if you show that you're willing to, um, change and adapt, then most people are willing to change and adapt also. There were things that happened in my career, you know, as a sergeant, I had people that were insubordinate to me, um, viciously insubordinate and nothing was done. Um, I had my, my rear slapped. Uh, I've had inappropriate comments about my chest. I've had individuals say to me, you know, you're not, you're not you're female and you just can't do this job. And most of the time I would laugh it off. I would say to them, for example, I had an elderly uh, guy and I say elderly, he was in his, you know, early fifties, but I was in my twenties. And he really let me know that he didn't think female could be, females could do the law enforcement job. And one day I went up to him and I said, Hey, you know what? I get it. I understand that you don't think females can do the job, I don't think old people can either. (laughs) And from that day forward, he was a huge advocate of mine. And my point is, is that you try to address the issues and not take offense to every little situation, every little thing. To become a leader within your organization, I think you need to be open. You need to be willing to accept those challenges Because in every job, I don't care if you're in El Salvador, you're in Germany, you're in the United States, we all have the same issues, okay? So address those issues um, and be willing to work work that job, okay? Adjust to maybe the different supervisors that you might have. Or, you know, maybe if you are a supervisor, kind of look at the fact that, are you the first female? Is everybody just kind of having to get used to that change? Instead of looking at it as, oh my God, I'm being attacked because I'm a female. It's that old adage, the positivity positivity that you put out is going to come back, okay? And if you put out as a female that, you know what, you're discriminating against me, or you're just only doing this because of a female, all that's going to bring to you is negativity from other people. Now, there are things that are completely out of our control. Obviously, in my situation, I had a chief. I had no control over what the chief did uh, or what he said or what he thought, but I went in every single day and I did the best that I possibly could, Okay. So again, I want you to realize that there are going to be challenges in every single place that you work. Um, but trying to look at it from that, that aspect of, okay, what can I do to build my resiliency to be able to do this job? And remember, we talked about those three forms of resiliency, um, look at those and say, okay, what can I do to kind of help this along or help the organization change their opinion about a female being in, le- in a leadership position?
1: What advice would you give to men that can see the disparity but lack the emotional intelligence Mm. to do anything
2: about it that's a great question in my situation mind you i said that i was one of the very few females at my department there were two female sworn officers at the time of what i was going through And a lot of the male officers didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to deal with not only me being a a sergeant and being over them, but ultimately they didn't know how to support me during what was going on. And when I would have somebody come up and just acknowledge what was going on, that was huge. I'm not, you know, You don't have to fix the situation per se, but acknowledging what is going on in that situation. For male first responders who might be kind of seeing that disparity, the first thing they're gonna think is they're gonna think to themselves, well, you know what? If I do anything, it's gonna affect my job, right? It's gonna affect how other people look at me. It's gonna affect my ability to do my job here because maybe not everybody else agrees with it. I would encourage them to sit down and have a conversation. Uh, And maybe it wouldn't be that person that they're working with in their agency. Maybe find a female in another agency. Maybe if you're a firefighter, go talk to a female cop. If you're um, an EMT, go talk to a a female firefighter. Go talk to individuals that have been through that situation and say, Hey, I see this as an issue. What can we do to prevent that? What can we do to make it better, resolve the issue? You know, peer support is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. You don't necessarily need peer support just when you're going through a crisis or traumatic event, but in these situations, it's great to go talk to a peer support individual that works in your area. So they can kind of understand the dynamics of what's going on, seek that out. Um, I am always available for somebody to come in and talk with me. I'm sure that Dave can uh, put up my email some way. Um, I'm always willing to talk to somebody that says, hey, you know what? Um, And let me give you an example um, of a fire agency in the Midwest where the, first female that they had that was bilingual. So It was a great, great gal that had just gotten hired onto the fire service. But the other females didn't want her around because that was competition. And the, all, the men didn't want her around because they thought that she was competition also because she was bilingual. They thought, oh my gosh, she's going to get promoted fast. She has all these skills that we don't and she started getting ridiculed and picked on for every little thing. So there was a male lieutenant within the fire organization that tried to go to the command staff to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is the situation. What can we do to kind of prevent that kind of behavior and not necessarily shield her, but kind of help her through that, that those dynamics. Well, that male Lieutenant ended up um, getting reprimanded because he was trying to help her out. What can you do in that situation? We definitely don't want it to get to that legal aspect of, you know, of whatever. We're gonna try to, to prevent that. So the best thing to go is to go through your levels of command, obviously, to go to your HR department um, go to your union if you have something. And then ultimately, if you have a peer support group, talk to them, see what they're, what kind of avenues that you can go. Every situation is different, obviously. Um, but my best advice is to talk to the individuals, i.e. the females, um, and get as much information and knowledge about what's going on as you possibly can. And then move th- forward within your policies and procedures.
1: In most government agencies, when someone reports um, mistreatment, a, a formal complaint needs to be written and their name is attached to that, which is a huge deterrent for most people or in my experience, the it was when we're talking about women, it's a huge deterrent for for women to come forward and say this individual did this, mm-hmm. especially when they're working very hard at becoming part of the team, because that is just going to isolate them. They're a troublemaker. They they don't understand. Yep. So how, how do you get past that?
2: You know, the last thing I ever wanted to do was sue to my, sue my department. I had every intentions of retiring from that police department. And I, I was in that, that situation. I did not want to make a formal complaint. I did not want my name attached to somebody that was complaining or, oh, she's just being a female I didn't want it to ruin my career. So what I did initially is I went and talked with my supervisors. Uh, I said, this is the situation. How can we deal with it? Uh, I was a command staff member, so I was not in the union. A lot of us have unions, right? So I would suggest that you go and speak to your union. Sometimes that can be dealt with. You know, sometimes we can address that issue with that. Maybe it's one person, not all the other male, you know, first responders that I work with. It could be just dealing with that one person. I would try that if you have a union or an association, then go to your supervisors. After I went to my supervisors, I went to HR. I went to human resources. And I asked, you know, what is the policy for the, for the city and in you know, some cases county or or state, ask what the rules are, make sure that you understand what they are and what happens if you make a complaint. Because once you do make a formal complaint, a lot of times they're gonna find out who that is. But also there are some great human resource um, organizations out there or segments or uh, departments, excuse me. Now, if you ask them to make it a confidential complaint that they will do that initially, okay? So there is that option. Once you've gone through every avenue. So for me, I went to my, my supervisors, then I went to the HR, then I went to the city manager. Once the city manager did not do anything about it, I proceeded to go talk to a lawyer. And at that point, I said to the lawyer, hey, you know what? I'm not looking to sue. I'm not looking to be that female. I like my job. I don't want to leave my job. I make killer money. I don't want to do that. I just want to know what my legal rights are. So she sat down with me. She told me exactly what my legal rights were, what I should do. Should I make notes? Should I you know, keep a diary of what's happening? You know, Should I record stuff? Uh, should I you know, keep every email or text message? You know, those types of things. We talked all about that. Got that information. I said, okay, um, that's it. I don't want to proceed. I just want, wanted that legal information. At some point, you know, that can, they can give you some great resources to be able to deal with that situation. Again, your name is not given yet at this point, right? If we've asked for it to be confidential, hopefully. Um, And at that point, once um, for me, it got to the point where I filed the the EEOC case with the state and then ultimately went further. In most situations, that's not going to happen. But let me tell you, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I never wanted to be in that position. I wish I could have done something to not be in that position. And that's what we hope ultimately we can do. But also peer support is really important in this because when I would call other police officers from other agencies that had gone through some type of discrimination, They were willing and able to give me a lot of good information that kind of helped me out early on, helped me deal with those stressors. So um, I get told all of the time, you know, I don't think I could have done what you did. And you know what? We all surprise ourselves when there's situations uh, that we're going to do something that we never thought that we would be able to do. I have spoken with a number of females in the first responder world that after talking to me, went back to their agency and found a solution to be able to deal with that situation. Because when you're going through it, you guys, it's so hard to step out and look at everything, okay? Because you're in the midst of it, right? It's like you're in the ocean and yet you keep having waves at you. You're not able to think of all of those things that you could do. You're just thinking about survival. And so when you go in those situations, please consider talking to somebody that can be helpful to you because that can get you over that hump, okay? Where maybe you are not gonna have to file a complaint. If you do have to file a complaint, you have to be realistic also what's gonna happen. Some people are not gonna be able to stay in their jobs. Some people, they are going to be able to. But understanding and educating yourself on what are um, the things that can happen, what are the things um, that can, you can benefit by putting your name on it. Because let me tell you, putting my name on that has ultimately helped a lot of women in the state of Iowa come in, file cases, and win their discrimination cases, okay? By me put going through those four years of hell, I was able to help somebody else. You don't understand what you putting your name on it can do for others too, not only yourself. Now, I left law, law enforcement ultimately. I retired in December of 2016. I retired on a disability because I was diagnosed with PTSD. That was a huge, um, (laughs) earthquake to my life. I had never expected leaving 11 years before I ultimately was going to retire, but look at how many people I get to help now. So I may no longer be a police officer. I may no longer be out there helping people in that type of setting, but I do a different job and help other people in a different way. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I failed at that in any way, shape or form. It just, that's my story. That's where my life went. So we have to learn to not be afraid of that. One of the things that I think was major for me being able to put my name on a complaint was the support system. You know, there's a lot of women out there in the first responder world that don't have support. They're the bra- uh, the, the um, breadwinner for their families. Maybe they have children and they need the insurance. They need those benefits that attribute to the job that they're doing. And that is all in danger. And that's terrifying to put your ne- your name on something and all of that being at stake especially if you are the breadwinner for your family. What I say to that is, again, talk to people that know what your legal rights are, what are your departmental policies and procedures and rights are within your department. Remember, there are federal laws against discrimination. In most cases, there are state laws in each state that has discrimination laws too. So hopefully that answers your question there, Dave.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Which brings me to the next question. A female firefighter in Wisconsin recommended I I read a book titled Athena Rising. Have you heard of it?
2: I have not.
1: It was written by two male Navy officers and... The book talks about the importance of men mentoring women in male-dominated fields. And they, in the beginning of it, they address some of the reasons why men tend to avoid that. Even if they want to, there's the fear of People pointing fingers like, oh, we know why you're mentoring her. Yep. And if the idea of favoritism, things like that, can you give some advice to to men and maybe say a few things to, to empower them to, to do just that, you know, mentor the women in their agency?
2: Definitely. That's great. I'm going to have to read that book. I love that. You know, uh, because there were no other females that I worked with, my mentors were males. And let me tell you, I had some amazing mentors and thank goodness they were not afraid of me being a female. Um, They looked at me as as a police officer. They didn't look at me as a female police officer. And thank God for those individuals. Let me tell you, from day one that I went into law enforcement, uh, my FTO, my field training officer, he was told by his wife that he needed to bring me over to the house as soon as I got in the car for the very first time so she could meet me. I was not allowed to go to be a part of the male softball team. Because I was a female, you know, there was all these elements that were big issues for the males, but never for me because I never looked at myself as a female police officer. The best advice I can say to um, male potential mentors is: do not look at them as the female. Now you're going to have people go, "Oh, I know why you're so close to Tanya because you know." Um, she's single and, you know, you're going to try to get in on that, you know, that's always going to happen because what do we do as first responders? We love to rib each other. We love to joke with each other. We love to, you know, kind of make fun of each other because that kind of makes light of what we do every day. Um, But for those potential mentors, address those issues to say, you know what, here, uh, she's a female, Female, yes, we know that. But guess what? She's a firefighter first. She's a police officer first. She's here just to do the same job that we're going to do. Regardless if you partake in that joking, um, you know, we're males and females. Some of us are going to find others attractive. You know, don't focus so much on that and worrying about that, obviously, but respect her as a human being. So... Potential mentors, you know, take a stand, say, you know what, we need to look at them as a firefighter or a medic or a police officer. And you know what, if you have to grab that book that you just mentioned, uh, Athena Rising, grab buy that book and give it to every single person out there so that they can understand what the issues are. Uh, If it wasn't for male mentors, I would not have made it as far as I did in my career. Okay. Okay. You are essential. You're essential in the growth of your own organization. Look at the benefits that an opposite sex can bring, right? And if you look at that and know ahead of time what the benefits are, yeah, it's easy to explain when those comments come up to say, you know what? I'm working with her because she's bilingual and she can teach me a little Spanish. She can teach me this. Or you know what? I know I'm retiring in 10 years and I want to make sure this department has good qualified firefighters or police officers. And making it not about the sex, but mentoring the individual. That's huge. Don't allow for that type of behavior. Okay? Joking has its place and I love it. And I love a good... Blonde joke, okay? Blonde, love good blonde joke. But I also don't take it personal too. Um, we have to change that environment, that that atmosphere that we um, have created ourselves. So you male mentors, if you're listening to this, I encourage you um, because the rewards are so much more to make that firefighter, that police officer, that medic, the best one they are. Not that female.
1: Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) It's true. I I just, I can't say enough about the male mentors in my life, you know, Jim and, and Captain Richards. And I mean, there's just so many, I can't even number that never looked at me as the female. They looked at me as somebody out there trying to do my job.
1: Now, I'd like to, like to hear a little bit about your leadership philosophy you know working in a male dominated field becoming part of the command staff being responsible for the success of these other police officers predominantly male how how did you manage that and and how did your experiences coming up in the in law enforcement shape your Your philosophy on leadership?
2: Well, I will tell you my male mentors uh, definitely shaped my philosophy Uh, and those supervisors that were not necessarily so concerned about every little I dotted and T crossed. They were more concerned about the individual and what the individual can do for the team. And that's really important for us to understand because we all are doing the same job and our goal is to make an environment where everybody is physically and mentally fit. And to do that, you not only have to uh, focus on the individual and making that individual strong in every aspect, but also looking at every individual and their impact on the team. For example, if you have an individual that you work with that is late to roll call every day, you know doesn't do their what they're supposed to do for their, you know whether it's, you know cleaning equipment or whatever their uh, requirement is every day, they're taking the slacky side or they take days off all the time. That one individual can affect the whole team. What do we do? We focus on that individual, right? And we bitch about that person and we say oh this person they never come to work they're constantly taking time off oh all they do is take their trips they don't do anything um initiate anything and that whole team is going to focus on what that person does well as a leader i believe our job is to address that individual okay aside from everybody else not in front of them when i started you used to be ridiculed in front of everybody else right and it was the fear philosophy oh, Tanya, she sucks. She's not pulling over any cars or or whatnot. Well, I do believe that it's important to look at the individual and find out what is going on. Okay, this takes us back to the philosophy of um, peer support and resiliency. If I'm going through a divorce in my life, is that gonna impact how I do my job? Of course it is, right? Right. If I have, if I'm depressed for whatever reason, and I'm going into a depression and it's affecting everything I do from at home and at work, people recognize that. If we know what each individual is going on in their life, wow, what we can do as a team, what we can do as a leader is we can be able to say, okay, I see what's going on with you, Tanya, right now. I may not be able to help you but please let me get you somebody that can help you. Uh, Maybe you just need an extra day off. Maybe you just need to talk to somebody. Uh, Maybe you just need to let me, uh, or you need me to tell you that you're important. And it can be something as little as that. Uh, So I feel like the leader not only has to recognize what our philosophy is, but also recognize what our mission is. But we have to focus on that, that individual for us to be able to succeed and make that philosophy or make that mission happen.
1: Now, can you talk a little bit about the the mentors you mentioned and, and how they were effective in mentoring you?
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, they took time. They took time to say, ah, Tanya, you're not doing this right. Tanya. Wrong way to react to this situation. You know, they would not be afraid to say, you know what we need to do, you need to do something different for this to happen. But they also were really good about saying, you know what, Tanya, you did a really good job of that. Or they would push me. I was in a really good position for a a number of years as a crime prevention officer. And I pretty much worked by myself. My supervisor had very little to do with me. Um, and you know, I had a take-home car, I had great hours, as much overtime as I wanted, but for me to get promoted, I knew I had to move into the investigations unit. Well, that's a hard decision, right? That was really, really tough for me to do. And my mentor said to me, you know what, Tanya, you don't get anywhere without taking a risk. You know what, it may work for you and it may not, but at least you can always say you didn't Hide from taking a risk to make yourself better. So they would address again, most importantly, um, the things I did wrong, and not in an aggressive, mean way, but in a way that would say, "You know what, Tiny? You're taking this way too personal." And and I would always say, "But guess what? My job is personal." And they would say, "Nope, you're right. You're right. Let me rephrase it because yes, it is personal." And they would look at the situation or what happened and they would give me great um, criticism. uh, But a great way to deal with that situation. They were there as friends. You know, I never felt like somebody was trying to hit on me. And I was single for most of my career. I didn't get married until I was 38. So um, 14, around 14 years in law enforcement, I was single or unmarried. And I never felt like they were having a conversation with me to hit on me or to make me in a, to put me in a situation that might look bad. But let me tell you, another thing is, is that my mentors never put me in a position where it would be misconstrued. Okay. So I never went over to my mentor's house, you know, to have a conversation. Inappropriate um we would meet in a public place we would talk at work uh did we get comments that, where they would say oh gosh yeah so and so they're they're you know spending a lot of time together or Jim really really likes Tanya so it's looking bad of course that happened but you have to choose as an invi- individual to let that bother you or not um you know what you're doing you know if you're being appropriate or not so for me, that mentor never put me, or many mentors never put me in that position. I will never forget when I first got hired, The it was an acting chief that hired me. And he said to me, he goes, Tanya, I have great hope for you. I have great hope for you at this police department. He never said, I have great hope for you as a female officer. He never made that an issue. And I think that's what we tend to do sometimes. And that's where it can go bad is when we put that extra descriptive label on it. You know, it's like, I have great hope for you as a police officer. And I want, and he also said, I want to see you as chief someday. Wow, what a goal to reach for, right? Um, So my mentors always gave me ideas for goals that I may not have necessarily thought of
1: now we mentioned advice for for would be male mentors for for women how important it, is it to have female mentors
2: huge huge so when i first got into law enforcement there were very few uh, female mentors really very few i and You know, in Des Moines, Des Moines is a large, large agency. And then obviously, like every place, you have your suburbs around. Des Moines had a lot more females than any of the suburbs. And I worked for a suburb. Um, So when I started at my first police department, there was nobody. I didn't I knew not one person in law enforcement when I decided to get into it. So the males had to be my mentor. And so what I decided um, early on in my career is that I was going to start a group where we were going to socialize with other law enforcement females. And it takes a while to get it started. It took a while because you're nervous because women are very competitive with other women, right? Especially in the first responder world, because we feel like we're not only competing against the men, but we're competing against these other females. So it's sometimes hard and that dynamic is really hard to kind of maneuver. So what I started doing is I started having um, female parties and I would invite all of the females in the area, the surrounding suburban areas, and we would get together and we would go out for, you know, dinner, or we would come over to my house for a little potluck party and what that ultimately turned into is us being able to talk to other females about what we were going through. And you saw a lot of similarities, you heard a lot of the same stories about how you would get treated, we would ch- come up with solutions on how to deal with that situation. And you know, it was probably one of the best things I ever did as a law enforcement officer is start doing that because we tend to look at um, the situation as, I'm the only one in the world that's going through this. Yeah. Uh, When I started going through my situation that I explained to you earlier within the police department, I found women that were much older than me that had been in the, the law enforcement and I sought them out as mentors. I sought them out as individuals that could, give me some good advice. So I feel like it's, you know, almost a duty for us females in the first responder world to help other females, because we need to make sure that the environment changes not only with the males, but with us females too, the way that we look at situations.
1: How tough was it? Maybe it wasn't tough, but I I think it probably, probably was how tough was it to, to mentor men in,
2: in your agency? Yeah. You know, that, that's an interesting question. So I had some male officers that I was friends with before I became a supervisor that it was not a problem at all. You know, Easy, easy, easy. And then I had other officers that were, they were going to fight it tooth and nail. They were not going to have a female telling them what to do. Now, keep in mind, I can't say to you that such an officer, one officer had a problem with me being a female or the officer had a problem with the way I supervised. You can look at it either way right? Because you're never going to know unless they tell you to that to your face. I chose to look at it as they did not like me as a supervisor. They didn't like how I supervised. I chose not to make it a female thing, okay? Um, there were some, that lit- some officers that literally came up to me and said, I'm never going to have a woman tell me what to do. And these are people that I supervise. Um. And so there were times that it was difficult and there were times that it was easy, but I also think it's a personality issue and a personality conflict. Now, that situation got to the point where he was extremely insubordinate. So I went to my supervisor, my lieutenant and my captain, and I said, here's the situation. I don't know if it's because I'm a female or, uh, or he just doesn't like me. I don't know, but the problem needs to stop. Okay. With somebody that you're working with like that, I would never be able to mentor him, okay? So I have to look at it as, I'm not gonna take it personally because there's people have so many different personalities. But then I had some wonderful officers, new officers that would come in and they felt comfortable coming in and talking to me. So as long as I never made it an issue, I feel, Um, female issue I treated them just like another human being you know I think we choose as an individual you have to choose to yourself am I going to make it a, a gender thing or not and if you don't and somebody else does that's not your issue that's their issue if it becomes something that's impeding at work or something that's affecting the job then deal with So it's kind of a hard question to answer.
1: No, no, I understand. Uh, What do you believe is the most crucial change needed in order to attract more women to public safety, law enforcement, fire service?
2: So for women in, for the first responder world, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different um, elements than a male would. Number one, a lot of times we're going to be the person that is, you know, going to have the child, rear the child, have to raise the child. Uh, we have a lot more dynamics to what we're doing in this, in, in our lives, our personal lives that do affect our jobs. So it's hard to have a female work shift work all of the time, especially if you don't have a great support system. So that's really important to recognize, number one. But I don't think females should be given specialty positions or promoted or given great hours just solely because of that. And so we need to recruit individuals that understand that, you know, that understand that they're not going to be treated any differently. They're not going to be given different shifts or put into detectives so they have a nine to five job or, you know, put on a rotation that works for them. So I feel like we need to recruit people from the armed forces. They're used to that type of work, right? They have that expectation of it. But also how we recruit is really important, meaning that we recruit in maybe areas that we know have a lot more females. You know, Maybe it's a, a private school that um, just has females there. We need to put our recruiting effort uh, design specifically for females because the dynamics are completely different. So I'm just making sure that they understand what the requirement is as a first responder. Then so once they get into the organization, it's really important to talk about retention because a lot of females get into the first responder world and then realize, oh, this is not going to work for me. Um, It's not going to allow me to get married and have children. It's not going to allow me to, to be available for my children when they need it. Uh, So retention is huge, 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 huge for females. A lot of females, um, and I'm sure males are to this degree too, is providing them avenues that will increase their need or desire to stay within the organization, meaning training opportunities. Um, educational opportunity. But let's be realistic. In my experience, we have a number of different females. We have females that are there for the job. We have females that are there to get married and not have to work anymore. Um, You know, it's a great place to find a, a husband, right? When you're getting into the first responder world. And I'm probably saying something right now that people are like, I can't believe she's saying that but I've been in this this field a long time. I see what happens, okay? Um, I didn't get married until late in life because I knew that if I wanted to have a child, I wanted to be there for the child, okay? I chose not to have children because of that. Now, by the time I got to that point where I wanted children and I was in a position in my career, it was too late for me to have children. So, we have to be realistic in the type of people um, or what our gender, um, the different elements that are going to happen when we're employed in the first responder. So, um, you know, how we recruit is really important. If I had the best recruiting tool, then I would probably be a millionaire. But I really encourage you to get older females, females that have military experience. Uh, f- females that might have a, um, a parent that's in the first responder world. How many times do you talk to your coworkers and say, hey, do you have a, your children that are interested in this job? Maybe you have a female that might wanna get into the fire service. Bring her to work, let her ride with you. Let her experience what's going on. That's a group that we don't even tap out. You know, There's a great resource. To train them early so they understand what the job is. I could probably go on and on about recruiting and retention.
1: What do you think the most important piece of retention
2: is? Most important piece of retention.
1: Yeah. How, how do you retain the women that you recruit?
2: Giving them opportunities I think is huge. And that doesn't necessarily mean giving them the, the perfect you know, shift um, or you know, not making them work 24-hour shifts. Or what I mean by that is giving them purpose of being there, okay? Whether that means, you know what? I want you to start a peer support group within our organization. Giving them some purpose or tie that family tie to the organization. You know, for me, my organization was my family. And so what kept me there was my connection to the organization.
1: In your role in this, throughout your career, and being involved with crisis intervention and and negotiation what what was the what would you classify as the most rewarding experience that you've had and maybe one of the most difficult experiences
2: okay the most rewarding experience and the most difficult experience oh i have so many rewarding experiences i i just Really, you know, I had a great career and I had wonderful things that made me appreciate everything I did. But probably the most rewarding thing is that I get to go out around the world and talk about my experiences, although difficult that it is. Um, I get to talk about my experiences and it really helps people. It really helps people. And even if I can help one person in every time I talk to somebody um, or a group of people, it's it's, to me the best thing in the world. Um, But the most difficult thing is going through what I had to go through. That was four years of dealing with, um, you know, discrimination. I, I hate to use that word. I don't like that word. Um, but four years of discrimination at my job that ended my law enforcement career. So that was definitely the most difficult, but funny to say, it's the most re- rewarding because that is what I use to help people. I get to show people that, you know what? I got out of it. Okay? Really bad experience in my life. But I got to move forward. And it didn't defeat me. It made me stronger.
1: Do you believe that the outcome would have been the same had you not been as well versed in resiliency?
2: No. I don't think it would have changed or would have been better. I think it would have been more difficult because I recognized, you know, one of the ways that I dealt with the stress that I was going through is I worked um, either either evening shift or midnight shift when he was there and I would come home. It was 10 hour shifts. I would drive home, go, um, you know, change out of my uniform, take a shower, go to bed. I would sleep all the way up to the point where I had to get up the next day enough to take a shower, get something to eat and get to work. I did nothing else but sleep. That was the way I dealt with my depression and my my stress. Um, I recognized in myself one night as I came home because as I was taking the shower or getting ready for bed, I would slam down a couple beers, right? And one day I recognized in myself wait a minute, this is a problem. You teach this to people, Tanya. This is a problem. You are using the alcohol to get you to sleep so you don't have to think about the situation. And that, that happened multiple times where I went, okay, it's time for me to go see the counselor. Okay, it's time for me to talk to my doctor about some medication. And if I didn't know all of this ahead of time, I would have really thought that there was something wrong with me that I was failing, okay? Which perpetuates that feeling of, I can't get myself out of it. Having that knowledge, as we all know, the more knowledge that we have, the better we're able to do something. It's the same about ourselves. The better we understand what happens physically and mentally to the body during stress, the easier it is for us to say, okay, we have to do something. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get through it. It means that I know I need somebody else to help, or this coping skill isn't working for me. You know, I was, I loved to, to exercise. I loved to box. Um, and that was one thing I stopped doing completely was doing any kind of exercise. So obviously I was gaining weight because I wasn't eating well We all know that, we all know we need that exercise to keep us healthy and keep us going. And when I stopped doing that, it obviously got a lot worse. And so being able to recognize that I know I need to be physically fit, I need to be mentally fit. And if I can't do it on my own, if those coping skills of me exercising isn't working, I needed to find something. And it changed over that four years, okay? My coping skills changed over those four years. So it wasn't like my coping skills were always, you know, working. I was having to adapt to that based on the stress level that I was going through. And most of us don't know that or recognize that.
1: Has being a woman in law enforcement provided any unexpected benefits or strengths in your role?
2: I am not ignorant to the fact that um, being a female helped me get hired as a police officer. During that time frame that I was getting hired, the mid nineties, you know, there was a huge push for females being in law enforcement and a push for females being in first as, as first responders. So I think that that definitely helped. I think the fact that I look at situations different and I am able to go on a call or deal with somebody who's going through a traumatic event, I'm able to be a little more empathetic or a little bit different in my response to how I deal with people. So the gender obviously, I believe has an effect on that.
1: Has it provided any any unexpected benefits or strengths? Yeah, Um,
2: I think so. I think that I being able to help other females in the first responder world, I never thought that that would happen. So that is definitely a surprise benefit of of what I went through and me being in in, uh, law enforcement as a female. You know, I think that I can look at things a little bit differently because I've had the career already. So there's definitely that benefit of being able to mentor a lot of females in the first responder world.
1: I'd like to know a little more about you, um, maybe about your your life growing up, what your family was like. Did you play sports in high school? Uh, you, you have... Uh, a way about you, uh, uh, like a natural leadership charisma type of thing. And I'm kind of wondering how your early life may have shaped that. (laughs)
2: That's that's a really interesting question. Um, Yeah. So I had a a kind of a rough childhood. Um, I grew up, I, I think I mentioned earlier, my dad was career military. So my dad was not around a lot. Uh, but it was not a good relationship between my parents. It was very destructive. And so kind of moved around a lot. My dad was never there. I have an older sister, an older brother and a younger brother. And so my mom worked a lot. So we pretty much were heathens, um, and whoever could draw blood first won. And so it was kind of the survival of the fittest, um, You know, although it was a hard childhood, I never look back and go, oh, my God, my childhood was awful. I just, I don't. Um, I look at it like this is just the way it was. My mom struggles with mental health. And that really, I think, shaped my world because, you know, there was a lot of times where we were dealing with her mental health issues. When I was in eighth grade, both of my brothers moved in with my dad after he left the military and my sister went off to college. So it was me. It was me and my mom and I became the parent and she became the child. And, you know, I also always remember thinking to myself, I need to have a job where I can pay my bills, where I can pay for my insurance, And I don't have to depend on anybody else. So I was very determined as a child. I was going to go to college, no matter what was gonna happen. Um, My dad did expect all of us to go into the military, but I rebelled and said, I'm going to college. I went to a community college, worked full-time the entire time I was in, in college there. Took a year off, as I'd mentioned earlier, went to Montana and worked in a factory, a um, wood factory, lumber factory. And I would grade plywood, wet plywood. And if you've ever picked that up, that is heavy stuff. So for 10 hours a day, I fed plywood, picked it up and fed it into a dryer. Um, And that's where I took the criminal justice class. Took a year off, made money, came back, went to college and I had changed my major to sociology with a minor in criminal justice. And I just always remember thinking to myself, you're gonna succeed, period. You don't have a choice. You don't have a net, you know? Um, A lot of people have parents that would be their net for them and I just didn't have those type of parents. So I worked hard, I always worked. The day I started in law enforcement, I was still working in a clothing store as a manager. And my entire career, I always had a second job. So I went, I worked for the Teamsters for a little bit. I um, was a adjunct instructor for Kaplan University for criminal justice. I oh, worked for the US Marshals, uh, transported prisoners. Yeah, I just always had a second job. I just always worked really, really hard with the expectation that, you know what, if the if the floor falls out, I'm the only one who can take care of myself. So interesting, huh? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you yeah and you know, we dealt with mental health on my mom's side of the family the whole I had an uncle that killed himself. I had a, you know, a cousin that killed himself. It was mental health was always I was, I knew about it. I always knew about what happens if you don't take care of yourself mentally. Um, My mom had a nervous breakdown when I was in eighth grade, and it was, you know, survival. But, you know, I think what makes me the person I am today is I don't dwell on it. I think really um, a human being, when they, when they look at it from the perspective of, all of these experiences in life make me who i am and not all of these experiences make me um uh, uh, you know insufficient or take the negative stance on it i really think that helped and you know i had a great support system maybe not necessarily in my family but my mentors um, my law enforcement mentors, people outside of law enforcement that were mentors in my support system have always just, I've been very blessed in that.
1: Yeah, I am, um, recently I've interviewed, well, I, I interviewed a couple of Navy SEALs. I've interviewed a couple other uh, well-established leaders in the fire service and Interviewed a guy that's uh, Air Force Special Forces, and I, um, I find it interesting. It's a it's a common theme, and I think it's absolutely necessary for effective leaders to have that mindset that you just described. That there is no failure. You you're your only failure would be is if you gave up. Yeah. So that, that determination, that, that drive to regardless of what happens, how hard you fall on your face that, you know, you're going to get up, you know, you're going to dust yourself off and come back stronger and harder, you know? And I, I just think that that's uh
2: You know, it's interesting. So there's four of us. You know, I have an older sister, an older brother, and then me and then my younger brother. And my younger brother is amazing. He was career military, um, retired, well, retired almost the same time I retired. And um, he was uh, sergeant major in the Army, in the striker brigade. And it's so weird to me to see the two older ones are not as what we consider successful, and, but me and my brother were exactly the same. We're very determined. We work hard. We, you just yeah. We once you, once you fall down, you get right back up. And it's really interesting how we perceive things differently than the other two, but they look at the negative. We look at the positive.
1: Now, one thing that I, I wanted to touch on before we before we wrap it up, we touched on the CISM and, and the mm-hmm. peer uh, peer support. I think you would agree that in in public safety and law enforcement, fire service, there's a stigma. It, it's hard to say, you know what, there's i uh, I've seen a lot of stuff, my cup is full, I need to get some help. And I- I'm just wondering, because I know that you, I-, I would imagine you address that when you go around teaching. And w- what advice and what instruction do you give to, to help eliminate that stigma?
2: So, You know, the stigma is huge. It's a huge part of why we don't ask for help. It's a huge part of why we have so many first responders with issues of mental health or depression or anxiety. Um, I feel like when I first started in law enforcement, you did not talk about this stuff at all. You didn't talk about peer support. You didn't talk about things affecting you. But now, 25 years later, I feel like, people are more willing to do that. So culture change is huge about minimizing the stigma. There will always be some sort of stigma, you know, that's just the way that it is, but we can minimize it. We can minimize it by talking about it more, uh, by educating our first responders to say, you know what, this is normal for us to experience significant events or traumatic events. And to be able to deal with how to minimize those effects of it, you know, self-care and, you know, not only just self-care physically, but self-care mentally, being able to know who we can talk to, whether that's you've got a peer support group, you have an EFR, uh, employee resources within your organization or a mental health professional. But understanding that we all go through it I'm sorry, there is not one person in the first responder world that hasn't been affected by a significant event or a traumatic event. But how we deal with it really um, is dependent upon what we know about it beforehand, right? But it's also going to help the stigma of it. So if we understand that we all experience it, we just all experience it differently, and we all need something differently to help us get through it. I think it's not as scary for people or it's not something that is embarrassing for people. Um, Because of the fact that, you know what, guess what? There's gonna be, it's only gonna get worse with the anti-police sentiment, with all of those elements, the COVID and all of those types of things are just gonna perpetuate what we already are dealing with in the first responder world. So education, education is huge.
1: If there is somebody out there listening that would like to reach out to you or or learn more about what you do, um, maybe get in touch with your organization uh, for either instruction on uh, crisis management, critical incident, stress management, peer support, those sort of things or just interested in having you come and, and teach in their organization, how would they, how would they reach out to you? What's the best way to contact you?
2: So a couple of ways, obviously my email, uh, which is Tanya at crisis negotiation.us. And that's T-A-N-Y-A at CrisisNegotiation.us. Our website is um, crisisnegotiation.us. And uh, we also have a Facebook page for our law enforcement, first responder resiliency and peer support, which provides information on not only trainings, but maybe articles that might be beneficial, uh, legislative movements across the country, um, just some positive reinforcement. And you can get to that by LERPs, L-E-R-P-S-5-5. L-E-R-P-S-5-5. 5-5 um, five, five reference, uh, references an officer, a coworker of mine that lost his life in the line of duty, August uh, 3rd of 2016, right before my trial. And so just kind of recognizing him with that. But we have a Facebook page, law enforcement, resiliency and peer support. You can type that in also. Thank
1: you so much. Uh, this has been, this has been an awesome conversation, and I, I look forward to hearing, uh, you know, getting feedback. And uh, I, I know that there's going to be men and women that are going to get a lot out of this conversation. So I really appreciate you agreeing to come on.
2: Oh, my pleasure! Thank you for allowing me to share. Um, Not only my story, but my, my need or my desire to help others. I encourage anybody who's got a quick question um, or wants to make any kind of comments, please feel free to email me, contact me over Facebook. I'm here to kind of direct and, and hopefully mentor as you brought up, mentor others, male and female.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit Hallenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.